I heard it said this way by, and, and well, this is a great segue. I'll just give myself the props in advance. <laughs> Legendary Disney producer, Don Hahn, who I heard speak at a conference said that his motto and basically the motto he brought to his work at Disney was that good artists create, but great artists steal. <laughs> Coming from Disney. That's, it. That's the quote. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Disney has stolen pretty much everything in their repertoire. Right. When you look at what so how they I, started, they took old stories, they just yeah. redid them, and we're like, look, we're geniuses. <laughs> Everybody loves what we create. And it's like, well, you're just, yeah, you're just using classics. Okay. It's wonderful. Not that, not, hey, you know what? If we've learned anything, that can be difficult to do. It's not always done right. You can steal poorly. You can steal well, poorly. You definitely can. I have seen many movies based on people stealing poorly, actually. Speaking of which, Nomadland has zero, <laughs> zero stealing, actually. I don't think there's any stealing in Nomadland. I don't think there's any stealing in Nomadland. Well, uh, maybe, maybe you could say corporate America oh, stealing yes. from the people. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Welcome, welcome to the Liberal Democrat podcast. I'm your host, Jake Roberson. This is this. the Libertarian Democrat podcast. The that Democratic have, Libertarian podcast. Yeah, I think it would get us both fired, but I do think it would be an interesting one. I am Paul. Although <laughs> Paul at this point, Paul has no idea if we're actually in the show or not. We're I Paul, have, welcome to the show. Why thank you. Thank you. It's really good to be here, Jake. <laughs> What's up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. And back inside, our crazy brains. I'm Jake. I am Paul. And potentially what you hear in the background are my children watching the movie Hoodwinked. Hoodwinked? Yeah. They're, they're having a movie afternoon while I'm slaving away. Doing the podcast thing. You know, I don't think That's I've right. ever seen Hoodwinked. You've never seen Hoodwinked, Paul? No, I don't think so. I don't oh, think that so. is a tragedy. You would love Hoodwinked, Paul. I might. You the are... interesting thing about Hoodwinked is even for the time that it came out, its animation was not good. It, it's pretty rough <laughs> animation, but yet it's got you know pretty good voice talent. It's got Anne Hathaway, David Ogden Steers. It's got Andy Dick, Patrick Warburton, and more doing voices. Glenn Close. Glenn Close, even. And it's this really irreverent... Uh, send up slash reimagining of the Little Red Riding Hood story. Speaking of stealing, thank you, Don Hahn. Uh, sort of done as a whodunit mystery in reverse, where they start the movie in the middle and then rewind and hear different takes on the story. And you can't tell who's a reliable narrator. And it's a fantastic little movie. It's got a lot of charm to it, a lot of heart, and some really good clever humor so there you go there's there's my little pitch to you hoodwinked so it's sort of like emperor's new groove meets knives out you know what that's not a bad yeah that's not a bad characterization emperor's new groove meets. i'm all knives over out. that that's, those are two great movies and classic i don't know if i so. trust you but oh paul oh paul you know you know that when i when it comes to me recommending movies to you 
that I'm not fooling around. I'm not going to, you know, I, I may have different tastes than you, but when I say you like this film, Paul, you're going to like this film. All right. All right. And I, that's a, I mean, that's a know-it-all guarantee right there. <laughs> that means so much, Jake. So slap that under your, your Netflix DVD queue. All right. <laughs> so it's on Netflix. Uh, I actually don't know if it's on Netflix. I own the DVD um, because that's how much I like the movie. It's all worn to nubbins. You cannot yeah, but, barely watch it anymore. But that's okay because the animation is not great anyway. So you just think it's a part of the bad yeah. animation. Well, and eventually you'll just be able to recite it from memory. And then you won't even need the DVD. You can just act out go. all the parts. You can I'll, I'll do a one-man show. Yeah. Yeah. They would love it. That'll be my thing. I'll do old movies for a podcast where people just have to listen to me read an old movie for. <laughs> They're like, this guy doesn't even have a good voice. This is garbage. I'm unsubscribing, but I got that download. Oh, man. Have you ever seen Ple- uh, Be Kind Rewind? I have seen Be Kind Rewind. It's what reminds me a little bit of your uh, your your plan right there. Sweeted, yeah. sweeted films. Most deaf. <laughs> Most deaf. Jack Black, Sigourney Weaver. That's a great Siggy movie. Weave. Uh, everybody who has not seen Be Kind Rewind, you got to see it. It's not it's a quirky little film. You know, it, it's a, it's a slow burn. Yeah, but if it, you like those kind of slow burn quirky films of sort of the mid aughts, yes, you know, Be Quiet, Be Kind Rewind, right there. Speaking of quirky little movies, I know I'm the one who's taking this podcast off track. I feel really terrible. This is not my usual role. But guess what I watched last night? What did you watch last night? A certain Will Ferrell movie taking place in in Eurovision Song Contest that we have actually spoken about. I actually watched it for a second time. It was Oh, you rewatched it. I rewatched it. Wow. I rewatched it. And for a movie reviewer who doesn't like to watch too many movies on his free time, that's impressive. It, well, see, I was just going through. It was just going to be one of those things where you have the playing in the background while you're doing yep. something else. Wendy was, my wife was, was going to go to sleep on the chair. She was doing some weird thing on her phone. And I thought, all right, well, we'll just, we'll just play this for a little while while I'm doing this other thing. And then we can go to bed and no problem. Well, halfway, like about, 15 minutes into it, I kept saying, Wendy, you got to watch this part. You got to yeah. watch this. And yeah, yeah, Ding Dong comes on and it's all over. <laughs> well, and as soon as they did the song along, she was over. She was hooked. So, yeah, we watched the whole and you finished it. stinking thing. It is this very that, strange movie and yet kind of fun. I, I still tear up to this day. I have the final song about my hometown yeah i have that on my spotify playlist and if it comes on <laughs> i'm tearing up guaranteed it's so sweet when they sing in icelandic oh, i don't it's gorgeous. understand it but it's it's, it's gorgeous it, it makes you proud to be an icelander even if you're not an icelander and That's neither right. of us are let's be no. honest it's funny that you have i i wasn't going to bring this up but since we're on this rabbit trail and you've got stuff to do here i go <laughs> yeah. uh I had that moment. I I am not a rewatcher type of personality or, you know, if I've read the book, if I've played the game, if I've watched the movie, 
I'm probably not going to rewatch it. There's a few it's exceptions, not- right? Seinfeld, The Office, a few things like Community, Lord of the Rings, a few shows, of course. Lord of the Rings that will enter that rotation for me. It's a very select, it's select company. Uh, and there's a surprising to me film that's entered that because I rewatched it for the third time after I was just like, I'll just, I'll just watch the opening scene because I had planned to watch something else. I had another movie I was going to watch, but then I saw it, that it was newly available on uh, Hulu. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to get I just want to watch the opening scene. And then I finished all of Mad Max Fury Road that night for the third time. And it was better than the first two times. <laughs> It's a pretty good movie. It is such a good movie. It is a really good movie. Just you saying that makes me want to watch it again. I actually want to watch all the Mad Max movies. Except for maybe... See, I never saw the originals. Oh, you gotta see The Road Warrior. That's a great movie. I remember reading, you know, in my 1993 movie guidebook. (laughs) Well, it is a little bit rough in places. But, yeah, it's, it's a pretty fun movie. One day, one day, a friend of mine and I, we sat down and, and sort of MST3, MST3K style. We just sort of talked about the whole movie as some sort of political allegory. And it mm. was super fun. It was great. We and and for- it turns out that friend went on to direct Mad Max Fury Road, which is absolutely a political allegory. <laughs> anyway, what are we talking about today, Jake? I just need to know, is your buddy George Miller who directed Mad Max Fury Road? He is. Good old George. I used to call him Georgie. Georgie Porgy, putting him pie. Speaking of political allegories and speaking of MST3K, Paul just gave me the perfect segue. (laughs) Nomadland, excellent political allegory. And MST3K, we're bringing back Hurt So Good because we watched on Netflix, Killer Clowns with a K from Outer Space. That's what we're talking about today. It's going to be a real humdinger. And of course, we'll wrap up the show the way we always love to wrap up the show. And uh, that's what the most least That's all, folks. That's what the most least important thing, which will not feature Porky Pig unless Paul is going to surprise me with something Porky Pig related. I don't know. You never know. But uh, without further ado, it's time for Nomadland. Directed by superstar Chloe Zhao, director of Marvel's Eternals, comes a little indie flick called Nomadland, about an old woman traveling around the United States in a van. Coincidentally, or not so coincidentally at one point, down by a river. (laughs) Paul, you wanted to talk about Nomadland, why don't you set us up? I did want to talk about Nomadland. First, I have to say this. I am very excited that I actually drafted into our fantasy film league because it's a very, it's a quiet movie. It's a gentle movie. It's a different sort of movie. And it has 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think this is going to win all the awards. And essentially what it's about is. It's not going to win all the awards. It might win two. All of the awards. Call it now. Two awards. All of them, including the animation awards. Nope. Director and actress. You think so? 
best picture. I think that I think that's what it's got. No, I don't. I don't think it's gonna get best picture. But I think it's got a shot for director and for actress. Best so picture. they just gave it to Francis. Are they gonna give it to her again? I'm taking it back. I think that that's yeah. I, I'm not sure if they're gonna give it to her. They're gonna give a nomination for sure. But yeah, it'll get the nom. Um, I think it's gonna be best picture. Maybe I think, best I think they'll give. I think they'll give Zhao director. I think they could do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, so I, I apologies, Chloe, if that's not how you pronounce Z H A L A O. Zhao. I didn't know I'm she did Zhao. Avengers Eternals. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. She. Uh, she has only done this Nomadland type of film where it's she's using real people playing fictionalized versions of themselves and shooting these very quiet, like family, community, kind of um, real, real hardcore indie flicks. And but she is directing Marvel's Eternals. And they've they've talked about how she's brought some of her sort of handheld shooting style into uh, the Marvel's Eternal. So I'm very curious to see what that ends up looking like. Yeah. Yeah. She is sort of a Richard Linklater type of person, isn't she? I mean, in terms of, in terms of a directing style, she has definitely this, this mood that she tends to embrace. Um, and, and that's a great segue to talk a little bit about what the movie is about. So Frances McDormand plays this woman named Fern. Her husband has just died. She is, um, her town is dying as well because the gypsum plant that she and her husband used to work at is closed down. So they wiped the entire zip code off the map where the, the, the business used to be. And she decides at one point in time that she's going to sell everything or put it into storage. She hops into this van and she just begins to drive around the country, essentially. She takes odd jobs at different places. She works as an Amazon fulfillment person over the holidays. She works at national parks, campgrounds. But generally, she just sort of drives around the country using those jobs to fund her next stop along the road. She's all by herself. The van that she sleeps in doesn't have any heat, obviously, in the night. It doesn't have a toilet. She brings along a bucket, and she becomes part of what the movie calls this nomad culture where there's a lot of people who have decided to put aside everything and they travel around the highways and byways of this great land of ours, exploring it and being on their own and essentially just shucking off the, uh, the, the big materialistic culture that, that, that we Americans know and love so much. Yeah, I joked about it being political allegory earlier, but it, it really avoids outside of really, I'd say, one scene, making any sort of commentary on the political culture of the United States or the corporate culture. It has some allusions to that and that certain characters have come out of that world, but it it she really seems to take a very pointed position of ignoring, exploring that angle and just exploring the story of Fern. Because, right. you know, Amazon, to your point, gets uh, some could could be squarely in the tar- the crosshairs of a film like this. Right. Uh, as so many different types of businesses have been run out of the you know business by a company like Amazon. And and we've heard some pretty unflattering stories about how fulfillment workers like Fern are treated, you know, particularly those workers that are seasonal. 
Um, and yet this film, Chloe Zhao seems to want to sort of sidestep all that and focus her camera, her lens on firm right. pretty predominantly and right. to stick with her and her kind of quirky band of uh, friends and acquaintances that she makes along the way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and it is a very, very personal journey. You know, as, as you talk about Amazon, she likes the gig because there's no expectations that she's going to work longer than a month or two. Um, it's pretty good money for the time that she spends. It It absolutely meets her needs where she is. And her needs are so small. Um, it's a fascinating journey into this very personal story of this woman who's sort of searching for herself as she explores the country, right? I think she's, she's searching for a certain type of meaning, a certain type of freedom. She's trying to find something intangible that I think many of us actually try to find as, as we go through our lives. I think one of the most telling things about the way that I reacted to this movie in the very opening uh, few minutes, you see you see Fern celebrating what looks to be the very, very worst possible New Year's Eve celebration, right? She's got her weird little glasses on. She has her little, her tiny candle. Celebrate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the tiara. She, uh, she is celebrating the new year completely by herself in this frigid van. It looks pathetic. And then a year down the road, you see this very same celebration take place within the very same band. And all of a sudden, van, all of a sudden it feels liberating it feels it just feels sweet and respectful in a way that i was not expecting yeah the the camera really as observant as it is overall and it try to sort of tries to position itself as this fly on the wall right that's just observing sort of what's happening in real life that's what zhao seems to do with wanting to use so many people like non-actors um, playing fictionalized versions, but basically being themselves. Um, <clears throat> it is fascinating the way she's able to kind of transfer very subtly along the way, the perspective of the lens, like you said, to where at first you sort of feel this pity yeah. and you, and you feel sorry for this person. And, and yet then that kind of over time. And I think through the, the storytelling that's very subtle in this type of film it positions you as the viewer and it moves you from this sense of pity, you know, feeling sorry for this person to well, next compassion and then empathy and then, or empathy, then compassion. And then and all the way around to sort of inspiration and yeah. being, being inspired by this character, even if you're not going to, you know, go sell everything and live in a van down by the river. It does feel, I can see where people, certain people watching this film, they might feel envious in a way. And I think that, that when you look at her, you you kind of, the, the movie brings you to a point where you can see that this is very quirky for sure, but there's a certain weird twisted honor about it, you know? Um, I do think that in today's culture, and, and, and again, like you were saying earlier, Jake, the movie is not 
at all preachy. It's not at all critical necessarily of the cultures that we live in. There's some really nice family scenes within a very well-to-do family. And it's not, right. it's, it, it's not pointing a finger at anybody or how they live, but there's something about our modern society with all of its pleasures and all of its distractions and all of its stuff that I think in some ways, many of us think, is it just too much? Is there a better, more honest way to live your life? And you see Fern, as she goes out into the world, she is she is living that honest form of life to the nth degree, you know, in an uncomfortable way that many of us would not be <laughs> particularly happy to do. And yet we can understand the beauty of it. We can understand her decision in a way, which is a remarkable feat for a movie like this. Yeah. And <clears throat> that struggle is sort of rooted in, in Fern's own struggle herself in her grief and of the loss of her husband. She talks about, you know, how she, doesn't even for a long time she didn't even feel like she could leave where the town that they had lived in all those years because to her it felt like to do so would mean he didn't exist anymore if because he died and the town died and the company died and like that her home disappearing like that made her feel like it didn't ever exist at all and so she has to kind of learn through this process of being a nomad that you know her it's not about the location. It's about the people, you know, that, that sense of home isn't isolated to any one setting, whether it's her, her home in empire, Nevada, or her van, or, you know, someone's country farm that all of those places, places can have home there if you are there. And, uh, and if the people you love are there and, and that those each have a different value to different people, which is a really, uh, an interesting film to your point it does not make superheroes out of nomads it doesn't turn them into this is the life to aspire to uh, but it also doesn't end up pitying them or saying all oh, these poor people or anything like that it, it seems to let them squarely exist as they want to and everybody else as well which yeah. is really interesting it's just fascinating to see a film that doesn't take a hard line on any of those issues be as moving as it is I would agree. It's it is neat to see the dignity that the film treats its ancillary characters. As you mentioned, very many of the people that you see in this movie are real people. They're real nomads who who have embraced this lifestyle. And the interplay between you know, high-powered actors like Francis McDormand interacting with these non-actors just living out their lives these fictional versions of their lives it's it was surprising to me how natural it felt on camera i was actually kind of surprised at how the balance worked uh, much of the movie you almost get the sense that the actress Frances mcdormand is just listening to the characters it's almost like she's just sort of absorbing what they're talking about and to be an actress in that position where you're both you're both acting as this character but you're playing against people who are not characters at all but just the real people that's a pretty remarkable job i was i was reading actually that that most of the the crew actually spent the entire time they were filming this in vans themselves i mean the whole the whole 
um, production was immersed within this nomad culture. And I think that it really shows within the within the film. And this this was a such a humanizing role for Francis McDormand, who, let's be honest, has had some really odd public appearances. You know, at things like the Oscars, for example, and uh, and yet, to your point, she's so quiet and understated in this role that it really does feel like a lot of times she's just listening and observing as and kind of getting out of the way of everybody else. And which is fascinating for a film that does so many close-ups and so much observation of her. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the power of the movie comes from is sort of its ability to rest in a space and draw a lot of interest out of subjects that we know inherently are fascinating and complex and, and doing so in, a, in the honoring way of listening rather than telling. It's not a film where it's like, hey, Francis McDormand needs to explain to you what nomad life is like. And there's a lot of films that do that, right? They're like, here, let us show you how this is. This movie feels like, as much as a Hollywood film can, feels like it's like, hey, why don't we just let Francis McDormand listen to nomads for an hour and a half and tell their stories and, and connect with them and find ways to weave them in and out of each other. And goodness gracious, Paul, I don't, I, I actually thought to myself as watching this film, I don't know how this is working as a film. And yet it is because there's think, not a whole lot of like story or plot. It no, just sort of is. No. And it, yet it works. It really is like an old style travel novel in a way, or a travel movie where it really does feel like you're just sort of on the currents of time and you're floating down this way and you'll see what happens. And I think your description earlier on of it being a listening movie, that's a really apt description. And how difficult is it for a movie to listen. I think sometimes you see it within the realm of documentaries. You have you have these people who speak for themselves, who speak to the camera and 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 the 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 filmmaker allows them to share their stories. This feels like in a way a beautiful documentary shaped by this very very loose narrative. It has a little bit of a love story. It has a little bit of a redemptive angle that it has to, to hold these stories together. But at the heart, it's really about listening to these stories. And you grow to really care for these people. And the thing is, you're caring for these real people. You're not caring for something that's written on a script. And that's, that's kind of an amazing thing. It is. And I think in that is probably the strength and weakness of this film. You know, you talked earlier about it being at 95% on Rotten Tomatoes and the critics are loving it. But then you go over to IMDb with its user reviews and it drops a whole 20 percentage points in the <laughs> mid seven and a halfs. And while I wish I could say, hey, uh, what's your deal to all the people giving it lower scores? I do get it because I, I see how this isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea because there's not that strong narrative to draw people through there's not action sequences there's no there's really almost no drama even i mean this is this is as quiet a film as i can recall having watched in so many ways the most exciting moment of the entire movie is when someone drops a box of plates that's yes, that... <laughs> that is the ultimate um you're right it it feels it feels artsy and 
in 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 a way that's going to push a lot of people away you know it's it's um it's not something that you necessarily go into thinking that you're going to be it's a very entertaining movie but it doesn't try to be entertained and it's and it and you don't necessarily think that you're being entertained as you're walking through it in a way right you know and it and it requires a certain level of introspection as you watch this i mean i think that that you do think about your own life you think about what you would do in in this van is this a life that you would like is this a life that you would hate what is your own relationship with stuff um i think that all these questions are questions that the movie asks of you not judgmentally but i think you have to be sort of in tune with those questions to really to really appreciate the movie for what it is. Yeah. I, I think one of the, probably the most surprising things to me about watching it, you call it, you said that it feels artsy. I, I actually don't think it feels artsy. And I think that was one of the fascinating things to me is I expected it to be more artsy, to be more of your, your ladybird, if you will. Um, <laughs> and to be that type of film that is like, uh, it kind of is a little, it kind of knows it's artsy, right? You know, it's trying to be, it's, it's trying, trying to, to be, indie. yeah, it's trying to impress. And this film really doesn't do that. Um, I liked when you called it more of, you know, a loosely framed documentary because that is a little bit closer, though it still doesn't quite do it justice because you're not getting the same documentary like explainers. Although I know that the people making the film had something to say with it. And we've talked right. about that. It's just about as close to a film that doesn't tell you what it's about yeah. as I've seen in recent memory. That's yeah. really unconcerned with saying, here's what you should take away from this. <laughs> and you, again, usually those types of films struggle to have a point yeah. to draw the user in. And I can see that there's some users that are not going to connect with that, but it does so yeah. in such an unpretentious feeling way. And I, I expected it to be pretentious. Yeah. It, it felt very gentle. And I think that it's part of the humanity of the people that they've found to anchor this story. You know, in a way, they're, they're, these are very real people, down to earth folks that you, that you get a chance to meet, and that's a wonderful thing. It feels, in some ways, it feels like the anti Big Short, right? Mm, that yeah. that movie that that was unpacking the whole uh, right. mortgage balloon, that whole that whole issue. It is yep. exactly the opposite of that, where that was that was pointed. It was quick. It had a definite point to tell you. It was scripted like crazy. I wonder whether Nomadland even had like five pages of script, you know? I would be surprised, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all the script would just be like setting, desert, <laughs> Fern nods. Yeah, exactly. Fern listens. Fern serves somebody food in a food line. Fern it's scrubs right. a grill. It's, it's really a beautiful movie. And one of the things that I actually really enjoyed it about it is I've been to almost all the places that she had gone to, you know, Wall Drug or the Badlands. She had gone to the Badlands. She'd gone to Yellowstone. All the these Nebraska places. beet farms. <laughs> well, I haven't been. Paul to- got his college degree just in the in the heart of Nebraska beetland. <laughs> <laughs> but another thing that this movie might actually do well in awards, which again is going to make me happy, cinematography. I thought that it was a beautifully shot movie. It was just gorgeous in a really stark sort of way. 
you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very cold. It very rarely gets away from the blues and the really muted, you know, earth tones. Like it is not trying to be, it's not trying to dress up the Midwest like the Revenant did. You know, right. where the Revenant's like, wow, look at those gorgeous vistas. Yeah, the Midwest has got some awesome stuff. And then you're like, well, is it the Midwest or is it the West? And then you have this whole debate about that. And then you're like, did Leo really, was he? Anyways, to your point, it lets the Midwest be its ugly, beautiful best. Ugly, beautiful best. That's absolutely right. And and again, I, I think in some ways you can make an argument that the scenery is emblematic of the movie itself. I mean, it the the people who we meet here are not, you know, stereotypically pretty. They're surprisingly enough, most of them are are pretty. They're older. They're pretty grizzled. They've seen a thing or two, and they have a really quirky look on life, um, yeah. which sort of expresses some of the Midwest itself. You know, I think that that it is to find the beauty. You have to look deeply. You have to look quietly at what you see. Right. But there's beauty there. There's it's really an incredible place. Nebraska. I love Nebraska in part because it's just so beautiful in a way. And this is coming from a guy who lives literally right next to the mountains in Colorado. Colorado is beautiful, too. But there's something very pretty about that, that a lot of people just don't have a chance to see. It's almost like the perfect callback to our last episode. There's beauty in the Browns. <laughs> I felt that it's like I've heard too. that title before. <laughs> I felt that echo too, but I didn't want to be too pushy. Beauty in the Browns available everywhere you can buy books. Also Amazon, maybe Fern will pack it for you. <laughs> Paul, uh, besides the content caveat, is there anything else you want to say about Nomadland, which is now available either in the, some theaters have it or on Hulu? I think that I have pretty much said everything I care to say about it, other than I would say that probably this is of the movies that I have seen this year. It may be my second or third favorite movie. This year, including 2020? Are you, is this like the calendar year? Period, right? Awards the, period. The awards season period. So it would be like, I think that I would put number one Minari, which mm -hmm. hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about here. Um, two might be Nomadland. It's a really tough choice. Three might be Soul. I don't know. I'll have to it's think. A, it's a tight top three there at the top for Paul. <laughs> there is the one content caveat. This really is, feels like a PG film for 99.9%. Yes. And even the 0.1% that's not is strangely not, to Paul's point, in his review of this film is graphic, but does not feel titillating. Uh, you do see an older woman floating naked in a river, which is like completely unnecessary to the film. And that, so it's a bummer for that reason and makes you wish that Hulu was, you could use like VidAngel on Hulu because then this is a movie I could watch with my kids really. Right. Um, but there is that the TLDR version is, Content caveat, that's why this movie is rated R. And so you do need to be aware of that before you decide to go watch Nomadland on a Hulu streaming platform near you. But now it's time for really a, like a film that's surprisingly emotionally very similar to <laughs> Nomadland. And that's similar. 
killer clowns from outer space. Swinging in from the 1980s for this round of Hurt So Good, delivering body blows galore, is Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Written and directed by the Coyote Brothers, the Chiote Brothers, the Chiode Brothers. I don't know how you want to say their name, but there's three of them, and they made this film. And it's time for Hurt So Good. Paul, this one was my suggestion. Nomadland was yours. I was like, hey, Paul, let's watch Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And Paul was like, hey, way ahead of you. I'm already watching it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what, Jake? It really expresses the difference between you and me, right? I go mm. for Nomadland. You go Killer Clowns from Outer Space. You say that, but again... I don't want, I don't want, I'm not going to let you just rush past the fact that you had already started the film before I even recommended it. Oh no, that's not true. You recommended that's what you said. I only, no, 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 no. Yes, I, yes, I, yes. I emailed and said we could do killer clowns from outer space for hurt so good. And you said, great. I've already watched the first half. <laughs> I psychically knew what you were going to recommend. That's all I can hmm. say. It okay. is, it is true. Maybe this is, I did suggest it last year. When it first got added to Netflix. So maybe that subconscious suggestion somewhere along the way. Of course, that's, that has to be it. And Jake, I do have to say, I have a very big quibble with this movie, but first we should probably let people know what it's about, right? Whatever order you want, synopsis or quibble. All right, let's do the synopsis. So, The title really says almost everything you need to know. It is about killer clowns from outer space. As far as we can tell, they're not aliens disguised as clowns. They are alien clowns, but they are just who they are. And they come to a small town in somewhere USA, and they decide that they're going to kill pretty much everybody in there, wrap them up in evil cotton candy and then slurp the living essence out of that cotton candy as sustenance. Yeah. I mean, essentially this is a snack run for these aliens. Exactly. Exactly. Spaceship, their big tent spaceship was running low on snack supplies. They're going through the universe. Like let's plop down and, and restock. Exactly. So they have even a little, their spaceship looks like a big top tent. They have little balloons that go ferreting out people. They have popcorn guns that shoot little tiny killer clowns eventually. Popcorn grows into little killer clowns. It it seemed to imply that the popcorn might be how, might be the babies. Are they like killer clown babies? Well, you do sort of wonder how killer clowns reproduce. Then there's a lot of questions behind this movie. Well, and and let's the way it suggests that they potentially reproduce using humans. Yes, yes, which that is, is pretty alarming too. Uh, was a very alarming little nugget for them to drop at the end of the film. Probably trying to set themselves up for Killer Clowns Two, which has been in production hell for the last thirty years, <laughs> as as perhaps well it should be. But essentially, you have you have most of the town uh, does not do very well with this invasion. But you do have three characters that that seem to do okay. You've got 
This woman named Grace, is that her name? That is uh, definitely not her name. Great. Her name is Debbie. We'll call her Grace. Her name is Debbie Stone. Hundred percent not Grace. <laughs> and then, and then there's her boyfriend who looks exactly like Doug Flutie. From uh, what's his name? I it, Barry Forrester. So close, Mike Tobacco. <laughs> Debbie Stone and Mike Tobacco. Oh well, isn't that interesting? And then you have Grace's old boyfriend, Grace slash Debbie's old boyfriend, the police <laughs> deputy, who has His name, very super stern. boring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's very stern. He does not Dave. Dave is that his name? Dave Hanson. Dave. It's like, oh come on! Hansen. You name Debbie Stone and Mike Tobacco, and then you're like Dave Hanson. Why didn't they just name him? Why didn't so, they go along with the whole drug reference thing? So disappointing. Yeah, he should have been like Dave Track. No. Yeah, Dave Track. No, this is this is going in Dave Sudafed. <laughs> Will Dave Chili P. <laughs> we'll move on from this this line. So continue. Yeah, so these are the three people who are who must deal with this killer clown threat. Um, Grace slash Debbie is in the the position of of just being the helpless damsel. The the boys are sort of fighting killer clowns, but also fighting over her love. Uh, the person who has the best feathered hair eventually wins. That's all I'll say. But. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and you do have you do have two brothers who own an ice cream truck that they drive around, and there's sort of the comic relief. They, um, I I don't know whether this is a spoiler or not, but they they sort of they're the only people who have a really really close encounter with clowns and survive. We'll just say that. But possibly making them the villains of the film because. Had it not been for the true spoiler, they may have helped propagate the alien race of killer clowns in that close encounter of a killer clown kind, but not killer in that instance. Apparently, the, apparently the female clowns have different instincts than killing, so, which feels very appropriate for the 80s and very inappropriate for the 80s and any other time. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was really... It was really an inappropriate movie in a lot of ways. And but at least they left it off screen. That is true. Unlike unlike Francis McDormand. Unlike Nomadland, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yes, it, that is where Killer Clowns is so much superior to Nomadlands. There you go. Uh, it's also notable that Grace slash Debbie was played by Suzanne Snyder, who is not notable for many things except for the fact that she played not one but two different female guests on sign in Seinfeld in two different episodes, two different female like love interests in Seinfeld. She actually plays a racist neo-Nazi in one episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> so there's that. Oh man. They probably oh. saw her work in, in killer clowns from outer space. And were like, that's the one get her in here. Here's my quibble. Here's All right, my I'm ready for the quibble. This is not technically a bad movie. Mm. that's the thing i don't know if it qualifies because it feels a little like it feels a little like sharknado 
where they purposefully made it silly and ridiculous and bad, right? So does it technically qualify as a bad movie then? It has 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. That, yeah. not, that is not a bad movie, Nake. So this this is a great quibble to bring up because I wrestled with this thought the entire film. I I so I knew nothing about Killer Clowns from Outer Space other than the fact that I saw that it had been added to Netflix and it looked terrible and so let's watch it. So I didn't know any of the backstory, anything about the brothers who wrote and directed it, nothing. I didn't know what its Rotten Tomatoes was, what its IMDb was. I was like, I'm here for this ride. I'm fresh. I'm a white canvas. Paint on me, Killer Clowns. And <laughs> so I sat for the, a lot a large portion of this movie thinking wait, are they in on the joke? They're in on the joke. They're doing this on purpose. And then something would happen. And I'm like, no, I don't think they are. That was pretty bad. And then it, a couple of minutes later, it'd be like, I think they're in on it. I think they're doing this on purpose. And then another couple of minutes later, no, wow, I don't think so at all. And then certain scenes. So ultimately you have a product. And then when you get into the history, you're like, clearly these guys were just up for making a bananas movie and they knew it wasn't going to be amazing. And they're like, but it's going to be bananas. And I still think that I can allow it to qualify as a bad film because it's clearly so bad in nope. so many ways. But it, to your point, it got it was so good at being so bad that you're like, I might actually genuinely like this movie because it's so good at being so bad. But I think it's exactly the movie that they designed it to be. I don't think like which is bad. When you watch Plan 9 from Outer Space, when you watch Trolls 2, Troll 2? Troll 2. Troll 2. You uh, you definitely know what the movie makers were made, were aiming at, and you know that they completely missed the mark. They aimed at the barn door on the other side of their back, you know? They, they, they... They just totally missed what they were going for. This one, I think they hit exactly what they were going for. They had these silly, sort of creepy clowns. They had <clears throat> some ridiculous lines. They had some, uh, granted, the acting was really terrible. I mean, that's that's one where, yeah, the acting was pretty, pretty bad. And the script, script writing was, was not And earnestly bad. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jake, you and I could, could do a better screenplay if we wrote every other word and we didn't know what the word written previously was. I think we right. did a job. I mean, that's how they made this film. Like the theme song, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, <clears throat> that they got the band The Dickies to make. Yeah. They they didn't watch the film and say, hey, come up with a theme song for this. They literally just sent them the title. Hey, this <laughs> we have a movie called Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Can you make a song for us? They're like, cool, sight unseen, just did it. And then that's the song they used in the movie. So, I mean, that the, was the approach to making this film. Yeah, yeah. But but see, they put in some serious money. Like, this was a $2 million movie when it was made. The The popcorn gun alone cost $7,000. That's the entire budget of Plan 9 from Outer Space. And yeah. you could tell, you could tell that the... the but the that's clown, still technically low budget. Not really. I mean, For, yeah. Nomad Land is low budget by that. So, you know, I think that I think that when you're looking at the quality of, of the clown outfits, I just don't think it qualifies. Especially... The quality I mean, of the clown outfits was terrible. 
No, the, they were good. They were good quality clown outfits. And here's the thing. When you are naming your movie Killer Clowns from Outer Space, you are definitely going for a certain clientele. I just, I think that this is, this just doesn't qualify as a, as a bad movie. Now, is it a fun movie? It is kind of fun. But yeah, I just don't think it's a, I don't think it's a bad movie in the way that I think of bad movies, where you see something that is just terribly made that was not meant to be what it is at all and is still kind of delightful. See, I think you're being a bad movie elitist now. <laughs> because here's here's how I think about it and where I landed on this and why I still think it qualifies, right? We've talked about when we've done Hurt So Good before that, right, you know, if a great movie is a 10 out of 10, then the best Hurt So Good movie is a negative 10 out of 10. So like a bad Hurt So Good movie, right, is like negative two to a two. Uh, and then, you know, the more negative you get, right, getting to a negative 10 is like, this is a really hurt so good bad movie all right now to your point a lot of the fun of hurt so bad movies is knowing that films arrived at that negative eight or that negative nine through true sincerity and in ignorance at how bad they were uh now i would argue something like troll 2 i think they were trying to make a bad movie personally uh, I think the popcorn scene is a get dead giveaway that the Coyote brothers were involved, even if they weren't credited. <laughs> but we know that there are a lot of films that have tried to be heard so good films and they land in the dud territory of that negative two to two. It's hard to make a movie so bad that it's fun to watch. Right. And so I don't think we should be elitists about it and keep them off of out of the winner's circle just because they're incredibly talented at making a horrific movie. No, no, no. We absolutely have to keep them out of the winner's circle because otherwise we're going to be doing Sharknado movies for the rest of our lives. Those No, movies- because there's not that many of them. Oh, Most of, like That's what I mean. Like 16 of them. No, of the Sharknado movies, yes, but I'm saying of movies that successfully are that are successfully so bad that they're good. Cause I've watched a lot that, you know, okay, that, that film was trying and it's just not good. It's not watchable. Not even as a funny film, not even like laughing about it. Like, I think most of them fall in that territory. I think what kind of makes this a triumph is that they were able to very earnestly pursue it and achieve it. Yeah, no, no, I, it totally disqualified. Totally. Disqualified. I think you're being an elitist. no, no, I think I think that this movie it, it, it's I you can definitely take it as a watchable semi fun movie in its own right, but it's it is meant to be sort of this horror comedy, silly slapped. It, it's a little like Chucky. Isn't Troll Two supposed to be a horror comedy? Well, see, here's the thing with Troll Two. This is it's a. I'm really glad that you brought this up because I was thinking about this. You do have, if you haven't seen Troll Two, you got to see it. But there's this scene in there where there's, I can't even describe it. But there's a popcorn scene that is absolutely the silliest thing that you will ever. The villain seduces a young man, and instead of sparks and other things flying, it's popcorn. <laughs> but. It, and that was designed to be silly, right? 
But yes. so much of the other parts of that movie are really not designed. It is. It was meant to be sort of this quote unquote horror comedy, but the but the production values are so incredibly low. The acting is so terrible. It's so inconsistent. I think that's the thing. You have to have for it to be a really bad movie. It has this is to so be inconsistent. Inconsistent. Has you, to. Be but up. you, we've literally just sat here before we got to your quibble, describing how inconsistent it is. How it has things like you said, incredibly bad acting. Where you're like, no, they are earnestly just not good at acting. Right. And how it has a terrible script, and it, how there are so many moments where you're like, that's that's just bad. That's not that's not intentionally bad. That's just poorly done. I mean, even sure. the car crash scene. Like, oh, the that's one of the. Scene. Yeah, that was that was poorly done. That was was literally cool. a product of them goofing it up. It was supposed to be big and bombastic. And and so it was them earnestly trying and still screwing it up. Yeah. So, so here, let's go back to the script. The script was very poorly written. It is not a very good script, but it did make coherent sense. Like you could see where they would get from one point to the next point. It went A, B, C, D, E, and it followed a general trajectory. When you watch a truly bad movie, it is A F H B Z G. Yeah, it, it, you're you're right and wrong all at the same time because <laughs> we still know what Plan Nine from out like Plan Nine from Outer Space. We clearly know what the plot is and it moves it along. Aliens start showing up. People come like you get the broad brush strokes okay. of oh, people are coming back from the dead and the aliens are doing it and it's because they don't like the humans and we figure out their plan in the end is because they don't want humans to create All right. All right. nuclear bombs out of sunshine. Got it. All right. Like now how that's executed, not very well. And the timeline's bad and the production's bad and you know the editing's bad. But that happens in this one. Like no. for example, when Debbie slash Grace goes to take a shower, she ends up taking like a couple hours long shower Based on the editing of this film, where like all this other shit, they keep cutting away to other stuff happening. And by the time she's finally done, you're like, like three hours has lapsed at this point, but it's supposed to be a five minute shower. Make long showers. Not that long. And it's, that's a You're trying so hard. No, 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 no. no. Bad movie. (laughs) Let's, Let's back up because you mentioned plan nine from outer space. So, so tell me what, the bad guys were trying to achieve in plan nine from outer space. I know you mentioned it, but let's unpack that a little bit. The bad guys are trying to stop human beings from turning sunlight into weapons that will destroy the entire universe. They are also trying to destroy the world. They are also saying it, it is completely completely inconsistent like i agree but you you have to actually say at one point we're trying to save you from yourselves we're trying to kill you with zombies you're trying to they have all these different things that that they unpack at one point but there are things that they say throughout the entire movie that are completely inconsistent with that well the same thing as in Killer Clowns, though. No, it is. Yes, no. right here. I've got. I've got case in point right here. Right. We talked about how ostensibly the aliens are here to just turn humans into liquid cotton candy slurpees. Okay. And and but 
Yet they do things and they interact with people in ways wildly inconsistent with that, like having sex with two of the humans (laughs) or turning one human not into a cotton candy Slurpee, but into a hand puppet and then just leaving them there. They don't even wrap them up in cotton candy. And so that he can mock another human character that he's never even interacted with. The alien hasn't. That makes zero sense based on all the other ways that they interacted, which was just immediately turning people into cotton candy. Why didn't they do that to Debbie? Why didn't they? They put her in the the, the blue balloon, the ball. Right. What's the deal with the, like, and then, wait, they've done that to other people, but they've never shown it anywhere else in the film until they do it to Debbie. Then all of a sudden they have a huge collection back in their alien ship. And again, the interaction where he turns one guy into a hand puppet to mock another guy that he has never met in his entire life as an alien. Like that doesn't make any sense, but see, okay. So it was a great scene, but it doesn't make any sense. Technically. I understand where you're coming from, but here's where you're wrong. Because, <laughs> because the whole conceit is these clowns, these clowns have to do clownish things. So they make them do clownish things all over the place. It fits completely with the movie's conceit and with the purpose that the movie actually had. It's not inconsistent. It's not, it's not, it is, it is really poor plotting, but it is not inconsistent. It is inconsistent. With the goals that the filmmakers wanted to achieve. Completely consistent with that. Consistent with being ridiculous, sure, but it's inconsistent from a viewpoint of watching it. Like, again, we got the message of Plan 9 from Outer Space. So that was the goal of that those filmmakers, wasn't it? That their message would get out there. So they were successful. In a, they were probably, here's the thing with Plan 9 from Outer Space, they were probably more successful than they could ever have dreamed of being with the cult success that Plan 9 from Outer Space has had over the well, years. Is- and so many people watching the film and getting this message about how bad nuclear weapons are, like that <laughs> might be the most wildly successful bad movie ever made. In that sense, because it's it's got it's been so widely watched that their message has hit more people than they could have ever hoped for on their budget. Okay. Also, speaking to budget, the average I just looked this up, the average movie budget in the 1980s was about 18 million dollars. So that means the budget for this film was only about 11 percent of that. So you can't tell me it's a big budget film. This was all this was a low budget film. No, but but you could tell that they had like funding. You could tell that this wasn't done. They had the funding to make four clown outfits out of their, and, <laughs> and then they just had to like rework them. Thousand dollars. Yeah, that and was the most expensive prop in their entire film. That's why it's notable. <laughs> that seven thousand dollars was the most expensive thing they made in the movie for one scene. It was a complete waste, by the way. So because they should have used it a bunch of times. You. I would dare you to listen to Criswell's speech at the beginning of plan nine from outer space and find any sort of coherency. I'm not arguing about the coherency of plan nine from outer space. I'm agreeing with you. I'm telling you this film also has it. No, no, this film. How did they get Joe Lombardo? How did they get Joe Lombardo? The first guy who's dead. They just found like, they just land people come up to them. Like the first people to discover them, they find a dude who's, disappeared you know potentially a while ago we don't know but how'd they get them because they've just been at their tent that's established because their first victim has to come to their tent it's not it's inconsistent it's not a true bad movie it is a true bad movie no when you're trying to make a movie like this it can't be a true bad movie
I just, I fundamentally disagree with you on this one. <laughs> it does feel like a bad movie. I feel like we should just mention that it does feel If it feels like, like a bad movie, how feels, is it not a bad movie? It feels ludicrous. It feels, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, no, no, it's no, a duck. No, no, no. You have to look at the meaning behind it. You have to look at so many different facets to find out if it's truly a gem of a bad movie. This is just, this is, yeah, this is just not it. This is just not it. It's like you can put a linebacker in tap shoes. It doesn't necessarily make him a tap dancer. This is a linebacker in tap dancing shoes. No, it's not. (laughs) These guys literally make, like they have been a part of other bad films. Ernest Scared Stupid. They actually reused some of the cl- clown costumes and modified them for Ernest Scared Stupid. Again, and, another movie that was intentionally bad. And it, did it succeed to the level of killer clowns from outer space? No. Yeah, I don't know. I've never seen any of the Ernest, Ernest movies. These guys most famously are responsible for Large Marge from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Super creepy. And so you, yes, you see that they do have some genuinely like, oh, it's kind of a creepy moment, like with the hand puppet. And yet it makes no sense with the rest of the film. I will give you this. The acting was really bad. The acting was really bad. The script was really bad. Doesn't qualify as a bad movie. You guys, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. It's on Netflix. I implore you to watch it. No sex happens in the film, except off screen. Content caveats that you have to give, though. So much language. There's some language... Some language in the film, people get choked out by, uh, you know, those those little blowy things that flap, you know, it turns into a hand, chokes a dude out. Um, yeah. you, you know, there's some creepy images. Don't let the kiddos watch this. They'll have some nightmares. Yeah. I, I need to know. Yeah. I, I need to know that Paul, that you guys are with me and that Paul is an idiot. <laughs> Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I'm giving it a negative eight out of negative 10. Oh my God. Hurt so good scale. That's my official score. Oh, oh, Jake. Jake, I am so disappointed in you. I will give it a negative three. Boo. It did have have some honest to goodness bad movie moments. It had. And it feels um, like a bad movie. And it's got bad acting and a bad script and inconsistency like a bad movie. To be a bad movie they didn't really coincide in a true bad movie dumb. Mm. Mm. I don't know how you sleep with yourself at night. (laughs) I am glad that you watched a horror movie though. That's good. You sir are a clown. (laughs) (laughs) They modeled these clowns after Paul AC. You can take that to the bank. (laughs) Any movie that kills its clowns by popping their nose. I don't think that is... That is intentionally a bad movie, not unintentionally. There you have it, folks. Intense disagreement between fanboy and know-it-all on Killer Clowns from Outer Space. That's how good this film is. All good (laughs) films are controversial in their own time. And Killer Clowns from Outer Space is controversial in its time. So there you go. And you know what, Paul? It actually, it got, here, here is my last silver bullet for you and my dear friends. It was reviewed people had to go actually went back and re-reviewed it years after its release because they gave it bad reviews as an earnest 
comedy horror film when it first came out and they rated it lowly because they thought it was supposed to, you know, cause they were like, it's not, it's not very good. Uh, and then they went back and rewatched it. One reviewer. And uh, at least one, reviewer. at least one anecdotally. <laughs> when we, ex- when we extrapolate the data, I think you're undermining your own point. I'm sorry. How am I undermining my own point? They reviewed it like an earnest film and they're like, this is a bad movie. That means it is a bad, it, it was is a bad movie. It was an that means earnest, it's not a good movie. It's not because if it, to your point, if it was just a good movie that's a comedy horror section, what we were so close to transitioning out of this section, but now I have to say he reviewed it as as like a horror comedy, right? Which inherently, when you think about it in horror comedy as a genre, it's bound to try to be bad because. Being scared is not the same as laughing. So when you combine the two, there's always an element of trying to be bad. Chucky movies are trying to be bad too, in their own That's special way. In their own, but not to true Z level bad. And this was not a Z level movie. It was it was a J level movie at most. For Jake, J for Jake because he is correct. <laughs> now it's time for the most least important thing. In typical most least important thing fashion, we're late and Paul's got places to be. <laughs> and we went off on way too many rabbit trails arguing about really oh, great bad movies goodness. like Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Oh my goodness, man. Did you know one of the directors of Killer Clowns from Outer Space actually played Clownzilla at the end of Killer Clowns from Outer Space? Charlie Chieto. So you can't be giving it away. Well, you can't tell. I'm not giving away any spoilers. Clownzilla. They don't know what I mean. They don't know what I mean by Clownzilla. That could mean a million different things. Oh my goodness. Cannot. And the most least important thing, we, it really the most least important thing is just like a sm- a smaller version of what happened in our Hurt So Good segment just now, where we just make a whole mut- bunch of ado about nothing. <laughs> or or take a look at what the culture is making a bunch of ado about, and we say, hey, you guys are idiots. There's nothing there. It's nothing. Paul, what do you got for us today? All right, Jake. I have really the least most important thing I may have ever had. Oh, the least most important rather than the most least, least important. least important thing in a way, mm. but it looks kind of tasty, so I'm kind of interested in this. Um, Taco Bell. We've mentioned Taco Bell before on this segment. We've talked about their literary magazine that they had for a time. They have a Taco Bell Quarterly. Taco Bell Quarterly. They have that's a referenced in our Hamilton episode for those of you that want to go back. It's that's a great episode actually, and it was one of my one of my very favorite most least important things. Yeah. This I will just have to wait and see when I order it if my wife ever lets me. Taco Bell has released a new piece of food that looks like a strange abomination of nature. Mm. If this was My a bad movie, it would, Taco Bell be, it would be a Plan 9 type of 
food stuff as opposed to a killer clown food stuff. Hmm. It is a it is a chicken taco sandwich. Chicken taco sandwich. Yes. It is not really a taco. It's not really a sandwich. It does have chicken in it. It looks interesting, but I don't know. I don't know. It seems kind of strange. Uh, kind of like old... the Mountain Dew Puppy Baby Monkey. <laughs> puppy Baby Monkey. Puppy Baby Monkey. Puppy Baby Monkey. Yes, that's exactly so, right. So it's a taco sandwich chicken. Chicken taco sandwich. <laughs> chicken sandwich taco. Chicken sandwich taco. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's it's uh it looks like an interesting abomination. It may be tasty. It may be a tasty abomination, but it is an abomination. The all white piece of chicken is marinated in jalapeno buttermilk and fried Come with on. A tortilla chip coating. Served in puffy bread that's shaped as a taco, then topped in a creamy chipotle sauce. Come it's on, son. Well, it seems like for science, Paul, you and I, for a future episode when this releases. What does it have a release date yet? Oh, um, beginning on March 11th, but it's Excellent. only going to be at first in Tennessee and North Carolina. Oh, so we'll that's... have to do a road trip. We'll have to, yeah. When we can, when we can get our, if we can get our hands on this, I am pledging that I will try my darndest to get Paul to actually do this. We will eat them live on air and argue about whether it's a taco or a sandwich or a chicken, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hash it out for the people. I think that would be a great idea because really these podcasts run so long that sometimes I need a little snack in the middle. of Right. Yeah. Got to get that protein, a little extra endurance. My most least important thing I think will also actually lead to a spinoff. Will it be the same spinoff episode? Only time will tell. Uh, But Disney has released their first trailer for, Emma Stone as Cruella. Paul, have you seen this trailer? I have not seen the trailer, but I've seen the poster. First yeah, I heard um, that Emma Stone was going to be Cruella. Yeah. it's. Uh, I watched the trailer, and um, I encourage folks to go watch it because um, I just have to say two things here. One, um, they're clearly ripping off Birds of Prey and like Suicide Squad with the vibe going on. Uh, you know, like let's make and and second of all, with that, since when did we need a gritty reboot for a character who already wanted to murder puppies? <laughs> like of all the people who needs a gritty reboot, we're talking about Cruella Deville here, who's notable for the fact that she wants to murder puppies. One of the most evil things a villain could do in the Disney universe. It's true. It's true. We saw and they're like, you know what? WandaVision, actually. Yeah, they're like, you know what? Not dark enough. Let's do a gritty reboot for the puppy killer. And uh, I just have to say, Paul, you know I'm a fan of the gritty reboots overall. I know you are. We've, we've talked about it on this show. This might be Disney jumping the shark. I'm going to, uh, like, the movie's not out yet. I, I could stand corrected at some point. After watching the trailer, they might be ju- Disney might jump the shark with Cruella. So you know what I think we should do? Hmm. Sight unseen, you having seen the trailer, me just doing a poster, we should do a numer- numerical rating on the new gritty reboot and say exactly what it is. 
and then we'll reevaluate when the movie actually comes out. I All say right, I'm, eight. You're going to give it an eight? Yep. I'm going 3.7. Hmm. So we will see. And, you know, it gave me the idea that maybe at some point we should do like a rank geeks on the top five gritty reboots that should definitely never happen. Oh, I'm in favor. That's a great idea. Yep. I think that'll be fun. So stay tuned for that one, but not for Cruella, which looks like hot garbage. It's going to be great. But that's... That's it for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'd like you to go on to Twitter and let Paul know how wrong he is about Killer Clowns from Outer Space. So right. His handle is at ACPaul. That's A-S-A-Y-P-A-U-L. Or you can leave a comment on our blog. Thank you, Levi. Shout out to you. And let us know who is the biggest idiot. (laughs) You know, that's what we want to know. and uh, also, you know, what do you think about Cruella, the trailer? I don't know. What do you, am I, am I overreacting here? Maybe, <laughs> maybe so. Did you like it? Not, I don't know. You're not prone to overreacting at all. I think. Never. You're never. always so measured. So That's measured right. and thoughtful. I am a consummate middle of the road kind of guy. It's kind of my, kind of my calling card, actually. It's, it's literally my middle name. My name is Jake Middle of the Road Roberson. Which is a really long middle name. But. Super long middle name. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Uh, but after you're done telling Paul what a big dumb clown he is over at, at AC Paul, A-S-A-Y-P-A-U-L, you can come talk to me and let me know that you did it. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. You know how to spell it. And until next time, I'm Jake. I am Paul. We'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. <laughs> Growing up, our big family reunions we go to were at like YMCA of the Rockies in like a big lodge where, you know, they shove each family into a bunk room kind of thing, (laughs) which as a kid was awesome. Yeah, that would be. How many people did you go to a family reunion with? How big were these family reunions? These were these were the you see them in movies. They're bringing in third cousins once removed who you've never heard of type family reunions where not, it wasn't even our family name, you know, some other family, you know, older family name that we're technically branched off of now. Like these are the hundreds of hundred plus people type family reunion gatherings. So talent shows, sports competitions. Oh yeah. Nose flutes were a big, were a big uh, hit. I remember one year. (laughs) Really? Yeah, you remember those nose flutes? You, oh, you yeah. Know, the little, little piece of plastic you hold up under your nostrils. and You know, it, I'm guessing you're all the talking about the talent show, not just walking around with them, right? Oh, absolutely both. As- <laughs> yeah. But for the talent show, they actually organized a band and played a song. Wow. Were you part of the band? I was not, no. That seems like it's right up your alley. I was pretty young at that point. Did so. it inspire you to be the person you are today? It, I I don't think you can 
I don't see how you can hear that story and say no. <laughs> but it didn't. <laughs> Welcome to Highly Questionable. I'm Jake Roberson. Wait. This is Paul Acey. Wait. Did we just change the name of our podcast? I did. Right I do that to my I do that to my team now at work because the TV show Highly Questionable used to be Dan Levitard and his dad, Poppy. Um but he's since moved on, but they always like to start the show like in the middle of some awkward pre-production conversation that they're having with all the guests. All of a sudden, Dan Levitard, the host, would be like, all right, welcome to Highly Questionable. I'm Dan Levitard. And then that would be the start of the show. Like You can really say a whole lot of just the randomness of how I approach podcasting has been influenced by things like Highly Questionable. Yeah, and I would say that it's actually a very fitting title for how you handle this podcast. You know, if the boot fits. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble for plagiarism or anything. And we clearly talk about very different subject matter than they do on Highly Questionable. But, uh, you know, it, you, you just look back and you look at the things that influence you. Sports Nation, Highly Questionable, the Happy Rant podcast, the Nine Thumbs podcast, one of the very first podcasts I ever listened to. Um, the Nate Land podcast, the Tim Hawkins podcast, so many different things like that sort of influence the way that you approach things. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, I, I heard it said this way by, and, and well, this is a great segue. I'll just give myself the props in advance. <laughs> Legendary Disney producer, Don Hahn, who I heard speak at a conference said that his motto and basically the motto he brought to his work at Disney was that good artists create but great artists steal. <laughs> Coming from Disney. That's, it. That's the quote. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Disney has stolen yeah. pretty much everything in their repertoire. Right. When you look at what, so, how they I, started, they took old stories. They just yeah. redid them and we're like, look, we're geniuses. Everybody loves what we create. And it's like, well, you're just, yeah, you're just using classics. Okay. It's wonderful. Not that, not, hey, you know what? If we've learned anything, that can be difficult to do. It's not always done right. You can steal poorly. You can steal but. poorly. You definitely can. I have seen many movies based on people stealing poorly, actually. Speaking of which, Nomadland has zero, <laughs> zero stealing, actually. I don't think there's any stealing in Nomadland. I don't think there's any stealing in Nomadland. Well, uh, maybe, maybe you could say corporate America oh, stealing yes. from the people. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Welcome. Welcome to the Liberal Democrat podcast. I'm your host, Jake Roberson. <laughs> this is <laughs> the Libertarian Democrat podcast. The that Democratic have, Libertarian podcast. Yeah, I think it would get us both fired, but I do think it would be an interesting one. I am Paul, although. <laughs> Paul, at this point, Paul has no idea if we're actually in the show or not. We're, I Paul, have, well, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. Thank you. It's really good to be here, Jake. Now Whatever it's time for the intro music. Called. <laughs> 